Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Heart of the Deal, Business, Bondage, Discipline, and Desire, written by Elizabeth Sarai. All's Fair in Lust and Business Ruby Maxwell Chen, the lovely and ruthless CEO of a sprawling British business empire, has no qualms about playing dirty, very dirty. She's happy to use sex to help her close the deal, especially when she's the one on top. Ruby loves the game, and she expects to win. When she encounters the inexplicably charismatic American entrepreneur Rick Martell, though, she wonders if she hasn't finally met her match. From the trendy clubs of London to the Hollywood Hills, Ruby and Rick compete for ownership of a strategic factory in Malaysia. As their struggle for dominance escalates and their mutual lust flares, they draw their employees and associates into their outrageous power games. The stakes could scarcely be higher as Ruby and Rick play for the ultimate prize, a night of total physical surrender. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Heart of the Deal. Negotiation Margaret Wednesday morning. I dreamed about Lou last night. I don't recall the details, but I woke feeling sensuous and lazy, as if I had been well fucked. Then I remembered Martell's appointment. Ruby needed me, alert and ready. I dressed in record time and was at the office by 7.30. Ruby arrived only a few minutes later. She was dressed more severely than usual, in a maroon brocade suit with calf-length skirt and mandarin jacket buttoned high at her throat. Her hair was captured in a tight chignon at the back of her neck. Gold gleamed in her earlobes. She smiled when she greeted me, but I could feel her tension. And something else. Maybe anger? Maybe even fear? Breathe, Ruby. I tell her as Lou used to tell me. Let the energy flow free. She stops and takes several deep breaths, then smiles again with far more confidence. Thanks for reminding me. Here's the Martel dossier. I hand her the thick folder of documents that I stayed late last night to compile. I didn't see anything particularly damning, but perhaps you will notice some detail that I missed. The pattern is as important as the individual facts, she replies. One must know one's adversary intimately in order to vanquish him. Good heavens, she sounds just like her father. She disappears into her office with the file. By the time Martel arrives, I know that she will be totally familiar with its contents. Somehow I suspect that Richard Martell will be early. From 9.30 onwards, I am on the lookout, but he manages to surprise me nonetheless. I am rummaging in my desk drawer, looking for a fingernail file. When he enters silently, I look up from filing my broken nail to find him standing in front of my desk. Margaret, I presume, he says, and I blush despite myself. He is smiling politely, but there is the slightest hint of laughter in his warm, well-tempered voice. He looks me over in a blatant appraisal. His eyes linger on my breasts, hidden under my white linen blouse. I feel suddenly naked, and my cheeks burn. As coolly as I can, I return his scrutiny. Richard Martell is not a particularly prepossessing sight. He is a short, slender man, with a drooping mustache that hides his upper lip. He wears a pearl-gray suit with a sunflower yellow shirt and gray necktie. Proper enough if a bit flamboyant and clearly expensive. 
Despite his business attire, there is something raffish and unconventional about him, something exotic, almost feral, something that would be more at home in a jungle than in the corridors of the corporate world. Strangely, I feel drawn to him. I struggle to hide my attraction. Mr. Martell? Miss Chen is still busy with her last appointment, but I will let her know that you are here. Thank you, Margaret. His smile is conspiratorial. I press the intercom button. Miss Chen, Mr. Martell has arrived. Ruby's voice rings out, calm and controlled. Thank you. Please tell him that I will see him in ten or fifteen minutes. Apologize to him for the delay. I hope you won't mind waiting, I say, wishing fervently that this disturbing man were anywhere else than in my office. Please, take a seat. I would rather stand, he says. He moves like a cat. Before I realize it, he is behind my chair, his hands resting lightly on my shoulders. You are even lovelier than Lou led me to believe, he murmurs in my ear. His fingers are busy undoing the buttons of my blouse. I am so pleased to have the opportunity to meet you at last. I should protest, should stop him, should scream. But I am helpless, immobilized by his voice and his touch. He evokes memories, echoes of Lou's tenderness and power. Now he slips his hands inside my brassiere. His skin is hot and shocking on my breasts. My nipples tighten and swell even before he captures them between his fingers. I release a shaky breath. I am trembling. Thank God Roxanne called in sick today. There is no one here to witness his conquest. Martell is still massaging my breasts in a slow and sensuous rhythm. Are you wet, Maggie? He almost whispers. I'll wager that you are. Lou said that you were always ready, always willing. He is right, of course. My thighs are parted and my clitoris is painfully rigid. I shift a bit in my chair, trying to ease the pressure. His hand snakes down between my legs, seeking bare, hungry flesh. I don't know whether to regret or be grateful for the fact that today I chose stockings and garters rather than pantyhose. His fingertips brush my thigh, and then we both jump at Ruby's voice emanating from the speaker. Margaret, would you please show Mr. Martell into my office? I lunge for the intercom. Right away, Miss Chin. My voice sounds husky and strained. Hopefully Ruby will not notice. Martell straightens up. I feel aching loss as his hands lose contact with my body. What a pity, he says, smiling and adjusting his tie. We will just have to continue this some other time, won't we? I ignore his comment, willing my hands to stop shaking as I button my blouse. My voice is icy as I lead him to Ruby's inter-sanctum. This way, Mr. Martell. Back at my desk, though, the aching returns stronger than ever. Of their own violation, it seems, my hands find their way under the desk and into my all-too-accessible crotch. Not again, I think to myself, guilty and embarrassed, but I cannot help it. Images of Lou and the diabolical Richard Martell mingle in my mind as I struggle to satisfy my unseemingly hunger. Ruby I hear the door open, but for half a minute I do not look up from the tablet on my desk. Let him understand that he is not my most important business. When I finally do raise my head, it takes every shred of my self-control not to betray my shock. Before me stands my arrogant seducer from last night. His hair is neatly combed true. He is wearing an Armani suit, and there is a flash of gold at his cuffs. 
but there is no mistaking that pirate moustache or those intelligent, audacious eyes. Once again I sense the sexual force that emanates from him. I will not succumb this time. I will not even acknowledge our previous meeting. I summon every ounce of power and pride. Rising from my chair, I offer him my hand. Mr. Martell, I am Ruby Maxwell Chen. My skin must be cold, for his feels burning hot. I release him as quickly as politeness allows. Please, sit down. My voice is cool, measured, completely neutral. Even I am amazed, and I see grudging admiration in Martell's eyes. Thank you for making time to see me, Miss Chen. He has decided to participate in the charade. Good. That should make things easier. If you had not contacted me, I would have sought a meeting with you. I understand that we have some common interests. Am I deliberately baiting him? He wonders. And so do I. Quite so, he says seriously. And I believe that we can resolve the situation to our mutual benefit. I make my face a mask. Please proceed. I need that fabrication plant in Malaysia. Etymologics needs it. His eyes never leave my face. We have several designs nearing completion, and we cannot risk manufacturing them in the States. Risk? I ask, caught up in his intensity. Industrial espionage, he says. In the U.S., we cannot afford our own fab plant. We would have to contract as a third party. It would be all too easy for our competitors to steal our designs. We have applied for several patents, but as you know, that takes a long time and provides only the smallest measure of security. Malaysia, Bakhtar's plant, is perfect for our needs, a foundry that we can own and control. And I know the country, know the people and how things work. So I gather you grew up there, did you not? In fact, your mother is Malay, I believe. Martel grins. You've done your research. Yes, Malaysia is my second home. He does not say any more, but somehow I know that he is aware of my background as well, my part British, part Asian heritage. What a strange coincidence that we should have such a similar history. I gather that you have persuaded Mr. Bakhtar that your company would serve his interests better than Maxwell Companies as proprietors of his chip foundry, presumably by offering him a higher price. Martel does not speak, but I read assent on his face. And if the Maxwell Companies should meet or exceed your offer, what then? I lean forward to make my point. We are far larger enterprise than your etymologics, Mr. Martel. We have deep pockets. Martel grins, most incongruous, given the tension in the air. I am very much aware of the size and power of your company, Miss Chin. However, you may not know that Ahmed Nasruddin Bakhtar is a distant cousin on my mother's side. There are ties of blood to consider. And favours, and counter-favours, I think, bitterly. Martel is animated and relaxed. He seems not the least cowed by me, though he continues his respectful form of address. From half a room away, I feel the force of his presence, willing me to melt, to accede to his desires. I struggle to take control of the conversation and my own unruly reactions to his damned physicality. You spoke of mutual benefit, Mr. Martel. Do you have a specific proposal to present? Yes, I do. He suddenly seems almost boyish in his eagerness. Rather than being adversaries, let us become partners. I raise one sceptical eyebrow, but say nothing. I propose that we, Etymologics and the Maxwell Companies, invest jointly in Bakhtar's plant, 50-50, at the price that you last quoted him. 
In return, Etymologics will have first claim on the foundry's capacity for our own designs. Meanwhile, your company will book and manage contracts for third-party fabrication projects to utilize the excess capacity. In which company would the title be vested? Etymologics would be the official owner. We need to have the final control in order to securely advance our technologies. But we do not require more than 25% of the plant's capacity at maximum while the Maxwell companies will keep 85% of the revenues from all outside projects. I do not like the way this is going. He is too glib. Before I can object, though, he has pulled a slim notebook computer from his briefcase and is beside me, setting it up on my desk. Just look at these figures. You'll make millions. He stands disturbingly close as he fiddles with the touchpad, booting the machine. I catch a whiff of his evergreen cologne. Despite my resolve, my knees turn weak. I am assaulted by an all-too-real image of his tumescent cock swaying in front of my face and then remembered sensation of the probing whip handle. He is logging in, intent on showing me his analysis. My eyes follow his fingers. I cannot help it. B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A. I suppress the urge to laugh at the way his password mirrors his self-perception. As he brings up a spreadsheet... I scrutinize his face. Did he deliberately reveal his password, or was this a careless slip on his part? He seems unaware of any lapse as he points excitedly at the screen. I file the information away for possible future use. Here, take a look. Based on my projections, your company would clear three million pounds annually, even if Etymologic's projects consume the maximum anticipated capacity. Given ramp-up time, I would expect our utilization will be significantly lower than maximum, especially during the first two years, leaving you with even higher profits. This assumes that the current boom in chip fabrication outsourcing continues, however. May I? I reach forward without his permission and start typing over the values in some of his spreadsheet cells. What if the market softens? What if there is another Asian economic crisis, as some analysts are predicting? What about the trade wars? In that case, not only would I not profit... I would lose money on my investment. I point to the final column of numbers, which revises itself in response to my changed parameters. Meanwhile, I say, looking him straight in the eye, Etymologics gets guaranteed production facilities at a discount rate. Martel holds my gaze, hint of a smile half hidden by his moustache. It seems that I am taking all the risk, whereas you are getting a certified benefit. Quite correct, Ruby. Some part of me notes his annoying shift to familiar address. However, the likely returns on your investment, if current conditions hold, are substantial. He looks at me thoughtfully. As you know, the Maxwell companies did not grow to their present impressive size without taking some risks. He is right, of course, and his basic analysis appears sound. Somehow, though, I don't trust this man. In his flashy suit, with his easy-going American manner, and his loose-limbed body that oozes sexuality with every move. He obviously knew somehow I would be at proscenium last night. He targeted me and humbled me, just to obtain an advantage in the present negotiations. Was this something that I wanted as a business partner? No, Mr. Martell, I say finally, trying to put steel in my eyes and in my voice. Maxwell Companies must own and control the CyberJaya Foundry. I would be willing to consider providing discounted rates or preferential booking for 
etymologics in return for some investment from you. However, that plant is to be the anchor for Maxwell's expansion into Asia. I cannot relinquish it to someone else. Martel says nothing. For long minutes, we simply stare at each other, at an impasse, while the heat rises. He cannot quite believe that I have refused. I try to imagine seducing him, as I did to my Mr. Dalton, using my body to bend him to my will. I fail utterly. I will go to Malaysia, meet with Bakhtar face to face. Just because Richard Martel is not susceptible to my wiles does not mean I cannot gain the advantage over a pampered, middle-aged, modern-day chic. By the way, my adversary breaks into my thoughts as if he could read them. I would not bother to book a flight to KL just now. Bakhtar and his daughter are spending a few weeks in Los Angeles as my guests. So you can clinch the deal, I think. I wanted to repay his wonderful hospitality in Gerontut. Of course you do, and to sweeten the pot with a nice California vacation. You are most welcome to join us, says Martel smoothly. My heart jumps. He is back in his chair now, but I still feel his presence beside me. Was it not he who commented on the advantages of being on one's home turf? You and your assistant should both come. I have broadband internet and teleconferencing facilities, so you should have no problem keeping up with your other businesses, and I guarantee that you can have as much private access to Bakhtar as you want. I don't know what to make of this gambit. Why should he volunteer an opportunity to influence Bakhtar? I'm quite sure he doesn't underestimate me. His behaviour today suggests that he knows my reputation. Does he believe he can prevail upon me to accept his compromise proposal? Does he perhaps merely relish the prospect of a prolonged contest with a worthy opponent? His face, with its angular planes and bright eyes, gives no clue. His body language is equally opaque. Inscrutable, I think, then stifle a most inappropriate urge to giggle. Could it be that he wants me? Wants to conquer not just the Maxwell Empire, but its empress. The thought is exciting and disturbing. I push it away. I will consider the suggestion, Mr. Martel, I say finally. Thank you for the invitation. Rick, he says, holding out his hand. From his perspective, the meeting is finished. If you are going to be my house guest, you should at least call me by my given name. Thank you, Rick. My tongue stumbles over the name saying it for the first time. Reluctantly, I grasp his hand across the desk. His magnetism simultaneously attracts and repels me. This time he does not let me go for a long moment. See you in L.A., Ruby, he says, with the slightest hint of smugness. Then he rises and walks out of the office without looking back. My palm tingles long after he has left. Alone, I allow all the feelings to wash over me. Frustration at being thwarted. Gratitude that, through self-control, I managed to neutralise his advantage from last night. Admiration for his devious business skill. Perplexity regarding his real motives and plans. And lust, fierce and pure, pouring through my veins like potent liquor. Now that he has gone, I allow myself to feel the tightness in my nipples, the ache between my thighs. The tension reveals its true source. My chic-fitted suit holds me in bondage. I cannot reach the places that cry out to be touched. This, at least, I can control and remedy. My fingers shake with eagerness as I unbutton my jacket and unhook my bra. My skirt I simply crumble 
to my waist, heedless for now of all the wrinkles I am creating. I reach into the secret drawer under my desk and retrieve the stainless steel vibrator that I keep there for emergencies such as this. An orgasm rips through me as soon as I feel the cool metal sliding into my depths. This does not satisfy me, though. I work the slick rod among my swollen folds, seeking relief that does not come. Why does Martel have this overwhelming effect on me? Chemistry? Pheromones? It feels like something biological and irresistible. Or perhaps telepathy. Empathy, some psychic force that allows him to catch and shape my thoughts. This I understand a bit. This is what I do when I play the dominant. Into it the form of my partner's fantasies and reflect them back in my words and actions. Oh, to have him in my power. Everyone, I believe, has some trace of the submissive, some secret desire to surrender, hidden perhaps even from themselves. If I could find and speak to that core in him. I picture him naked, remembering, even in my fantasy, that I have never seen him so. Tanned, taut, nearly hellish, except it is groin. He stands, as I command him, spread eagle before the plate glass window of my thirtieth floor office. Anyone can see you, I remind him, tapping my ruler against one shoulder, and then the other. Anyone who happened to look up. He is nervous, now that he sees that I have the upper hand. His mocking grin is gone. You seem to enjoy the exposure, I comment, pinching his thickening erection. I survey him from one side and then the other, close enough that he can feel the heat of my body, catch the scent of my rising excitement. Place your hands on the glass, I tell him, to steady yourself for what comes next. He swallows the lump in his throat and obeys. I sense his increasing arousal. I don't need to check the state of his cock. I am clad in a suit of a more provocative cut than I would ever wear in a real business meeting. A suit signals power. I wear no knickers. I can feel dampness on my thighs as I strut before him on dangerous heels. Now, Rick, I say, emphasizing the familiar nickname, I am going to teach you a lesson about respect. I snap the wooden ruler smartly against one muscled butt cheek. He gives a little yelp. Before he can recover, I apply the ruler to the other cheek, then repeat my blow to the first. He is panting, and his face is red. Meanwhile, his swollen penis points obscenely toward the ceiling. When you were a little boy in Malaysia, Rick, swat, did your teachers beat you with a ruler to keep you in line? Smack. We British set up the educational system, after all, and we have always been great believers in corporal punishment. I slash the ruler across his butt three or four times in quick succession. His bottom looks like tartan plaid. I check his face and sure enough, see arousal as well as discomfort. His lips are parted. His breath comes in little gasps. Since his first exclamation of surprise, he has made no sound. How do you feel, Rick? I ask, sweetly murmuring in his ear. Sore, he says softly. Is that all? I ask, raking my fingernails lightly across his inflamed rump. He is silent, stubborn. Well, I ask and slap him with my open palm. Horny, he almost whispers. What do you want, Rick? I want to come. Then ask me nicely. Please, Miss Chen, please let me come. Perhaps later if you behave. Right now, though, I have something else in mind for you. 
I hold up the silvery vibrator and watch his eyes widen in horror. No. He starts to speak, then breaks off. Don't you want to please me, Rick? I slather lubricant across my palm and run my hand suggestively over the length of the metal shaft. I thought you wanted to be my partner. He does not speak. His penis jerks as he tries to control himself. Push out your butt now and spread your legs a bit more. I position the greased vibrator against his tightly curled sphincter. Now relax. I am fucking myself furiously deep into this mental scene when something shifts. Suddenly, I am the one who's nude, splayed before the window with my arse stuck out. I feel rebellion, fear, anger, and incredible excitement as Richard Martell enters the vibrator into my rear hole. I hear him laugh. Come on, Ruby. You can't pretend with me. And finally, I explode into orgasm, cursing Martell and my own traitor imagination. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Heart of the Deal. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.